listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 318. What's going on, Mark? It's been a long day. It really has. We shot some video for our Sunday update. We got a whole bunch of work done today, and now we're recording, as usual, in the evening when we're both hungry. Right. <laughs> and I still have, like, two more emails I need to send, so. Me too. But before we get into all this stuff, if you want to leave us a review, the best way to do it, go to the show notes and hit the link. If you want to try to remember, it's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW. And we got a pretty cool review. Actually, we got this by email. Yeah. You want me to read it? Yeah. All right. Hi, Mark and Paige. Thank you. Exclamation point. The Oil & Gas This Week podcast helped me uncover a huge business opportunity for my company. Episode 313 included a story about Prairie Operating reporting a 2.4 billion possible reserves in Colorado. I checked our CRM and Prairie was not even in our database. I had one of my 10 members cold call their director of operations, and we were able to set up a meeting for our sales team to discuss providing a rig for their multi-year drilling program in 2024-2025. Thank you again for helping me do my job better and keep up the good work. Best regards, Brendan. And Yay, hey, Brendan. Brendan. Yeah. Big shout out, Brendan. Congratulations. We don't always promise that listening to this show will drive billions of dollars to your revenue to your company, but you know what? Sometimes we do. Sometimes it happens. Let's get the news stories. All right. First up, BP CEO Bernard Lunley out after past relationships with coworkers. Yeah. And that sounds really bad. I actually don't know the intimate details. Not sure I want to know about the intimate details. No, that sounds gross. <laughs> not going to lie. But let me tell you basically what happened is in the process of him entering the executive branch of BP, he had to disclose there's any past relationships with any of the other employees of BP. And he did disclose some of them, but mm. not all of them. Recently, it came to the board's attention that there were some that he did not disclose. After a conversation, he agreed to step down. Now, BP said that there was no breach of company rules were found, other than the fact that he didn't disclose everything they should have oh. disclosed. Now, one of the things that I want to concentrate here now is not so much what he did wrong, but the way that BP handled this. I think this is the way you handle this sort of stuff. You hold your executives to a different level that you hold your employees, especially for public companies that, that well, have yeah, shareholder absolutely. value and yeah. trust. And the fact that even though he technically didn't break any rules, he did not tell the whole truth. Yeah. A lot of companies would have looked the other way. And I think this is a great thing that BP actually did saying, you know what? This does not meet our ethical requirements, even though you didn't break any of the rules that are yeah. in the rule book. And so we're going to ask you, how do you want to handle this? And he did the right thing. And he said he's going to step down. Now, in the book of you can't make this stuff up, now some of the climate activists are protesting that he is leaving BP because Looney was the one that said that BP would achieve net zero or carbon neutrality by 2050. So in some weird parallel universe, even though BP and Looney both said that the best thing to do is him to step down because he violated ethics, even if it wasn't actually rules that he broke, 
Now you're having a group that fights against everything that BP does, except they don't want their CEO to leave. Like I said, you can't make this stuff up. That is so strange. It is really strange. But whether Bernard Looney, you know, what he did, to me, it doesn't matter. The fact that BP looked at this and said, you know what, this isn't right and we need to fix this. In a time when their shares are not doing awfully great compared to their competitors, I just think this speaks highly of their board and making sure that they always do the right thing regardless of what would happen, including climate protesters saying they don't want you to let this guy go. That's so weird. All right. Next up, California lawsuit says oil giants deceived public on climate seeks funds for storm damage. Yeah, I don't need to go too deep in this. The title says everything. This is past utterly ridiculous. My question is twofold. Number one, are the courts where we're going to decide What's important with climate and climate change? Is that really people? Is that we're going to do that in courts, right? Instead of scientific consensus and agreement mm-hmm. from experts around the world. And if we are going to do it in courts, does it matter where that court is? Would this suit work better in the courts of Texas that is doing it in California, I wonder? Huh. Probably. The other thing is, what's the flip side of this? So let me tell you what's going to happen. This is going to be a bunch of litigation. A bunch of money is going to be spent. What this really is is a stunt by their governor to get more political cred, right? Ugh. This will be eventually thrown out of court because it can't be substantiated in any shape or form. Then is it okay for these same large companies, which, by the way, he didn't name all the oil and gas companies. Mm-hmm. He just named the ones that have big pockets and big spins in California or are used to, I should say. So is the flip side okay that once this is over at these companies and once we find out that they had nothing to do with climate change and that they have not been lying to or covering it up, can they turn around and sue the state of California? I think that would be absolutely fair. I'd pay to see that. I would pay to see that too. But the companies named are ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and BP. Didn't name any of the hundreds and hundreds of other operators that operate in the world, in the U.S., and also in California. And the fact that they call it big oil. Well, how about we call you big politics, California? Or how about big shoplifting? I just did a thing on the balance. Oh, man. The shoplifting is going in California to the point that it's driving businesses out of business because nobody cares. This is ridiculous. But if you really think that man's activity is affecting climate change and you really think the oil and gas companies have some type of culpability, that should not be handled in court, at least not yet. That should be handled by consensus by groups of scientists and experts figuring out what the hell is going on instead of this politicized lawsuits. You know what kind of trial it's supposed to be? Is it a jury or? They're not even, they have not even close to that to figure out okay. which way it is yet, right? I was just curious. Uh, but even Shell said, look, the courtroom is not the proper place to address global warming. Come on, California. So this is California trying to do Doing stuff. Doing Californian things. Yeah. All it's going to do, number one, is drive these large companies, which are employers. Chevron is a big employer in California. Their corporate headquarters is still in San Ramon for now, although I bet after this they move it. Mark my words. This is just going to drive more jobs out of California, more big companies out of California. And regardless if the state of California wins or loses, guess who's going to pay for all this? You and me, Mm -hmm. right? So stop this sort of stuff and let's actually work together and try to fix stuff instead of trying to get people elected. All right. Russia sends first ever cargo of CPC crude to UAE. Here's the funny thing about this. I have no idea what CPC stands for, like the words, but I know what it is. It's a blend that they have agreed upon that the refineries in the Middle East like. So it's the right blend for the Middle Eastern refineries is what the CPC is. I think it's like a dozen different oils blended together, but I just can't remember what CPC stands for. Well, there's so many acronyms to keep up with. Not in our industry. No, <laughs> never. So Russia sent their first cargo to United Emirates of CBC blend. This is the first time that UAE has ever purchased this crude blend from Russia. 
about 123,000 tons were sent in the Delta Helena's tanker. Boy, I wouldn't want to be called Helena's tanker in that part of the world right now. Long story. Anyway, this crude is being transported. They'll hit the Cassian pipeline, and from there, it'll go straight to the refineries. Interesting about this is, unlike here in Europe and most of the Western world, UAE has not imposed any sanctions against Russia, which is allowing them to ship this crude to the Middle East. It is interesting. The blend should have been sanctioned because it wasn't blended in the tanker. It was blended in Russia somewhere. Hmm. How they got around that, I don't really know. The other thing about the UAE is even though they're part of OPEC, they basically came out recently and said they're not going to join Saudi Arabia in making voluntary oil cuts. They're just not going to do it. And if everybody's, you know, this is um, September 25th of 2023, the price of crude is continuing to go up. The demand's going up. There's not enough supply. And I expect the prices to continue to climb. So if the UAE is not going to join the production cuts, it tells me that they want to increase production. And the reason they'd want to increase production actually is to make more money while the prices are high. So this is an interesting quandary in does OPEC let the UAE sort of run rogue, even though it's a big member of OPEC, and at the same time, allow the UAE to buy non-sanctioned oil from Russia, which actually is a double whammy as far as making money. Or does OPEC step in and say, you know what, we need to have one side or the other. You need to toe the line with OPEC and make the cuts like we are, or you need to quit buying this Russian blend. Interesting times to be in the industry right now. Yep. Certainly. Most certainly. Well, here California is again. California truckers race to buy diesel rigs ahead of new zero emission rule. Yeah. So here's what's funny. So California and its supreme thinking, the government there decided they would have a state mandate that any trucks, any talk about diesel trucks, old road trucks bought after January 1st of 2024, which is right around the corner, yeah. have to be zero emission vehicles. Their intent is to take diesel trucks off the road, replace them with battery or alternate fuel diesel over-the-road trucks. Excuse me, folks. I'm going to call them diesel trucks even though they're not running diesel because that's how my mind works. So what did they actually make happen? They made everybody and their brother-in-law go out and buy as many of these diesel trucks as they can because they don't want to have to buy electric over-the-road trucks because electric over-the-road trucks – don't make them any money. They cost too much money up front. There's not enough charging stations. You can't run massive loads, one in the country and other, on battery power. Number one, because you don't have the range, especially right. if you're carrying heavy load. But number two, there's just none of the charging stations, right, right, bottom line. And so they've actually created the opposite effect where there's a huge movement right now of all these companies, all these shipping companies buy as many diesel trucks as they can. So instead of a small shipping company in, let's say, Los Angeles that would probably buy three trucks over the next 10 years, that same company bought 30 last week. So they don't have to worry about the next 10 years. Goodness. Yeah. What they're trying to do with this ruling, the state in California, they've done actually the opposite. It is going to be interesting to see. So one of the things that there's a whole bunch of things that California's done that kind of fly under the radar. But one of the things is that by December 31st of 2024, which is also only about a year away, right? A little bit longer than a year. The, all the ports in California are supposed to be served by zero emission vehicles. That means trucks coming in and out of the ports. And the port of Los Angeles is one of the busiest ports in the world are going to have to be battery powered because there's no other alternatives right now. Think of the Tesla truck. It makes a little bit of sense to have those trucks running in the terminal because in the terminal, you have a massive amount of trucks moving all those sea cans for short amounts of distances. Uh -huh. And they bring them to other terminals in the state where then the longer road truckers come pick up the sea cans and move them all over the country and eventually maybe even all over the world. So just coming in and out the ports ought to make sense if they have the charging stations for these trucks. However, 
that was going to be my next question. The How ports are they have no money all? to build the charging stations. Uh uh-uh. Yes. So even though I may buy electric truck because I want to get the contract to work just in the port, I have no place basically to refill it. And the port says we are not building a recharge station. We don't have the money for it. So California, I'm not sure how the well that's going to work out. I will say this much, though. Here in Texas, we have the second biggest deep water port. And I would not be surprised by the end of next year, <laughs> we're now passing up the port of Los Angeles because of the mess you're going to make of moving your goods in and out of the port of Los Angeles. Like I said, by 2036 total, California is not supposed to have any more internal combustion engines sold in the state. Let's see where this goes. I think I've talked about this before. I think what it's going to really do is drive people to continue to keep older, less efficient internal combustion engine cars. Which is no better than... It's worse. Yeah. Yeah. I love that state. It's beautiful. But God dog it, California. Get some common sense somewhere. Yeah, buddy. Let's move on to Canada. Canada's Trans Mountain Oil Pipeline expansion to disrupt oil flow to the U.S. Interesting. So basically, this is transport from Alberta to the Pacific coast of Canada, which would then open up literally the entire world. Speaking of California, who doesn't like to produce their own oil, even they can do it for pennies on the barrel because it's all over the place, other than the oil they buy from the Middle East and Russia... <laughs> California. You buy it from Canada. So you have your own oil, but you buy it everywhere else. Well, this pipeline, number one, is going to not give California and other parts of the Pacific coast that buys crude the leverage they had before, because basically a lot of that crude in Alberta was landlocked. There's no way to get it to market. Right. Yeah. So the producers had to take a lower price for it, and they would ship it by rail or truck to California. Uh-huh. Now at the pipeline, they're going to have a choice. Interesting. Sorry, California. I know you're paying 6 or $7 a gallon for gasoline oh, no. right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. See, you got it, right? <laughs> oh, man. Let me just tell you, I think in the next two years, that 6 or $7 is look like a bargain at the fuel pumps in California because this is a perfect example. Why go through the trouble and headache of shipping that crew to California under the secrecy of darkness? I know they aren't really doing the dark, but I'm just imagining that because nobody wants to admit they're importing oil to California, especially the government, that they're doing it at night, which I'm sure they don't. But now the Canadian government, the Canadian producers can sell it to the world because they have a pipeline to the Pacific Coast. Good for Canada. Yeah. So the other thing that's going to be interesting is our refineries here in the Gulf Coast have a big appetite for that heavy crude that's produced in Canada. Now they're going to have a more efficient way to get it here, right, is they can actually, instead of shipping it through the rail and truck, which really should be Keystone Pipeline, but our politicians killed that, they're going to be able to ship it by super tanker down the Pacific Coast. So this is kind of good for the Gulf Coast of the United States. Our refineries love this crude. We'll be able to get it for a little bit cheaper. Unfortunately, California won't be able to get a little bit cheaper. And then you have the Midwestern refineries, and they're in a little bit of a flux because what would happen is they had a bad habit or a good habit, depending on how you look at it, is they waited till a lot of that crude got landlocked in Alberta, like if a pipeline went down, mm-hmm. and then they would buy it for pennies on the dollar for all those refineries that are like up north in the middle of the country. Yeah. Now they're not going to be able to do that either. So unfortunately for states that are landlocked that depend on the Midwestern refineries, Illinois, Kansas, stuff like that, your prices probably also go up for refined fuels a little bit. Not as bad as to go off in California. But this is cool. I'm actually glad they built this pipeline. And I would have lost money on this. You want to guess who built this pipeline? Who? The Canadian government. It's a long story. Remember our whole story about the yeah, Canadian yeah, government? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But it's going to be up and running. And this is good for Canada. It's good for all of our friends and our brothers and sisters in Alberta. Let's hope they build a couple more pipes to get this oil out of Canada and rid of the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So federal judge says area for oil and gas leases in Gulf of Mexico must be expanded. 
Our current administration said, yes, we're going to help you at the pump U.S. population. We're not impeding the oil and gas industry at all. We're issuing thousands and thousands of permits, and the oil and gas industry doesn't want to drill. Well, that's not really true. So this is a perfect example of our current administration who condensed the offshore oil and gas lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico by 6 million acres. So they took away 6 million acres off the plate. So wild. And this is also the group. Remember we talking about how the sea vessels <laughs> could not travel at night and they had to oh, reduce their gosh. speed. This is all part of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a federal judge looked at this. There's a couple of records here. This is the second fastest decision a federal judge has ever made in the history of the federal judicial system. That's kind of sad. 27 minutes to make this decision. And the big proponent of this is Landry, who's running for governor, who's a current attorney general in Louisiana. He argued that the state is entitled to these royalties, which helps fund the state of Louisiana and also all the states in the Gulf Coast, right? Texas here and everything else. Absolutely. They could lose over $2 million because our government shrunk the area. And then he also said that trying to restrict the movement of sea vessels in the oil and gas industry in the Gulf of Mexico to not operate at night was the most asinine thing he's ever heard come from the federal government. <laughs> and he's been working in the government in Louisiana for years. So for him to say it was asinine, it had to be really, really bad. <laughs> We're trying not to laugh. I'm not trying. We're anything. from Louisiana. We get this. When a Louisiana politician says the politics are bad, it's bad. <laughs> so this is our favorite group that was in charge of this. It's a Earth Justice, the Rice Whale Alliance, Sierra Club, Turtle Island Restoration Network, Friends of Earth, the Center for Biological Diversity, all are upset because API, the state of Louisiana, and Chevron won this case, which it should be. This is the right thing to do. Our current administration telling the public that they're not interfering with the oil and gas business to try to stay in office while at the same time they're doing stuff like awarding these leases and then cutting out 6 million acres and more restrictions. That's not right, people. Trying to pull the wool over our eyes. Let us do what we're good at. And if you don't let us do what we're good at, uh, we're going to go to court. And in this case, you set a record. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so greenwashing backlash sparks ESG exodus. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about this, about how ESG was super hot. And especially for the smaller operators in the U.S., got to the point where they couldn't get capital and they need capital to work. The smaller operators can't fund themselves. Mm-hmm. And so this was a huge thing. And actually, we're kind of hip deep in this, too. So we started one of the first ESG podcasts that I know of, but we started too early. And that was my fault. I saw this ESG movement coming. I saw the importance, how it affect our business and our industry and the world. So we started a podcast because we knew there was interest around it, except I started too early when there was just an interest, when there was no money, nobody was hiring ESG managers, nobody's putting budget into it. And so the first version of our ESG podcast failed because there was nobody listening because we started too early. Then we sat on it for almost two years and we brought it back and now it's killing it. But we've approached it at a different angle. We're approaching it as how it actually really affects business. And that's sort of the same thing that's going on in this article in that a lot of big investment companies think about BlackRock and other big money managers who said they're not going to invest any money in any company that doesn't have the right ESG metrics. They were specifically targeting oil and gas for being dirty and polluting the planet. And what's happened is since they didn't make those investments because we didn't have the right ESG checkboxes to check, they lost millions, if not billions of dollars of returns that other companies actually made. And so at some point, point, the shareholders of these companies and the investors in these companies like BlackRock said, look, 
I don't care about your ESG thing. You're making me lose money while your peers and your competitors are making money. That's a big deal, especially when BlackRock is like, no. Yeah. So BlackRock is no, and they, and they put a line in the sand, and now when nobody's looking, they erase the line in the sand, and they stepped over it about 100 yards. <laughs> <laughs> so they've closed a lot of their ESG funds. I mean, not shrunk them, literally closed. And it's not just BlackRock. State Street, Columbia, Threadneedle Investment, Janus, Henderson Group, Hartford, all of them have closed close over two dozen ESG funds just this year alone. And then BlackRock's closing two more ESG funds with about $55 million in assets. So do I think this ESG thing is gone? No. What I think happened is the world and the investor community made too big a deal out of it, which caused people to react and companies to react. And they reacted in some ways which were not good for the companies or their shareholders or even for people or even for the planet. Now I think it's kind of leveling off and we're going to get back to the reality of ESG. In the oil and gas industry, for as long as I've been in it, we've always cared about the environment. And I'll go head to head with that with anybody on the planet. This industry cares more, measures more, does more to protect the environment than any industry here and in Europe and in Australia and maybe not the rest of the world, but we're getting there. It's the governance part that we've needed. I've said this before. The environment we've always been stewards of, always will be. The social part, I think we've done a good job in the last 10 years worrying about the local communities that we operate. I think we've done a really good job there. It's the government's part where an operating company goes bankrupt and lays off thousands of people, yet the CEO and the executive team walk away with millions of dollars in compensation. That's not right. And we're working on that, right? So I think ESG is here to stay. I think it's part of, of OGGN. We try to be very responsible for our impact to the environment, for the local communities we operate in. Even in our governments, you know, none of us make millions of dollars, right? The money goes back into the company. And, oh, no. And we create a lot of money. We throw a lot of money at charities, right? We try yeah. to give back. So I think ESG is here to stay. It's nice to see that the power that these big investment groups had around ESG is, has basically been taken out of their hands. And we're back to doing business where it makes good business sense. Yep. JP Morgan analyst sees energy super cycle with oil as high as $150 a barrel. Mark my words. Somebody write this down, write a timestamp on this. I am agreeing with JP Morgan. I usually Whoa. disagree with everything they say. And not only do I disagree with what they say, they're one of the companies that right after my predictions come out, I see them again in their publications. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been that way for a very long time. Yeah. Now, they're saying that they will hit $150. By 2025, at the end of 2024, I unfortunately think it's going to happen sooner than that. It's creeping up. It's I creeping think it's up. By the second quarter of next year, we'll be at $150. Okay. And if something bad happens with Russia and Ukraine, that'll happen overnight, $150. Yeah. We're in a weird place. And I've talked about this before, and I still don't quite have it all figured out. I've, I've been doing a lot of research on finance, global finance around this. But basically, the demand is going up. Supply is not meeting demand, which is why prices are going up. And normally, this would be the time where the operators start drilling. And whether that's conventional reservoirs offshore or on land or wherever. And then when oil hits right at $100, that drilling activity gets frantic and we overproduce. and We drive the price back down to $60 a barrel. That's not happening right now. And I've never in my life since I've been in the industry, seen this, where demand's going up, price is going up, but drilling's not going up. In fact, drilling's going down in some areas of the world. Yeah. And it's a combination of inflation making it more expensive to drill, 
the fact that we can't get labor, we can't get field hands out in Midland or field hands out in the North Sea or whatever, but there's something else going on. Part of it also is our world's government's trying to push us into renewables too quick. We're still trying to recover from that. But there's something else I, I don't, don't have it quite figured out yet, although I will have it figured out for my predictions for 2024, which will come out this November, J.P. Morgan, just in case you wondered. So, <laughs> <laughs> J.P. Morgan sees the supply and demand imbalance at 1.1 million barrels, so the difference between what we produce versus what the world is using. That 1.1 million barrels imbalance, they see that by 2025. It's going to happen in 2024, unfortunately. Mm. What we're going to do with it, I don't know. Give me a little while to keep looking at all these finances. Once again, I've never seen this before, so this is going to be new to me, but something different's happening. I can't quite figure out if it's good or bad, but it's going to happen regardless of what I think. Yeah. All righty. Chevron LNG workers in strike. About time. What did that take? A week? Which everybody, including the workers, the unions, and Chevron wanted this to end quickly. Right. Because the amount of money that was to be lost. When the strike was first announced, they took that half a day off, which I spoke about in the two episodes ago, I think. LNG prices globally jumped 35%. And that was just on the perception. You got to remember, over 6% of all the LNG produced in the world is produced by Chevron on these two projects in Australia. So they have a huge piece of the market. And I've said this before, Chevron, I don't know if you have a crystal ball or if you're just lucky, but when you started these two projects, the Gorgon and Wheatstone facilities, shoot, that was 12 years ago you started? I thought y'all were crazy. Like, I didn't see any market for LNG, much less the market you saw in Asia Pacific. So how y'all did this, I don't know. I would love to know. Actually, if y'all have a crystal ball, share it with me for my predictions. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the two groups came together at the negotiating table. They've come to agreement, which is good. They're back doing business as normal. So now there's no longer a danger of supply chain disruptions for LNG. Now, the LNG market is still topsy-turvy crazy because everything going on in the world. We're heading into winter. And if you listen to me for any length of time, you know I said two years ago that last Last winter for Europe is going to be bad. This winter is going to be worse, and this winter is going to be worse. We're heading there. Europe is frantically trying to store as much LNG as it can. Germany literally, in, I don't know, it seems like two weeks, built the largest awful – and I know I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but it was – It's pretty quick. Don't give the German people the problem and tell them they can't do it because they're going to freaking do it. Yeah. They're building the largest LNG offloading terminal in the world, and they've done it unbelievably quickly. So the LNG market is still a mess on how much of the world's going to depend on U.S. LNG versus LNG from the Middle East and who's building the facilities to offload it and to regasify it and everything. So that market is still very immature, a lot of opportunity there. But this is good that they came, further strikes were taken, that the workers are back to work and Chevron can do what it can do best, which is provide LNG to the parts of the world that need it. So many strikes going on in the world right now. So many. We'll talk about that on Behind the Curtain. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Equinor submits development plans for 9 billion gas project off of Brazil. FPSO audience is a test. Remember what it stands for? Floating production storage and offloading. So this is a vessel. Think of a big boat. So they drill the wells. They go in production and they have a riser. Riser's like a big pipe from the bottom of the ocean floor. They bring this FPSO over to it. They connect to the riser. They take everything that comes up from their well. So water, sand, oil, gas. They can separate it right there on the vessel. Which is They sweet. store it on the vessel. And then the vessel's set to offload it. So they hook up. They process all those hydrocarbons, separate it, end up with sellable products. They drive to a port somewhere and they offload it and they make money. FPSOs were around before Brazil discovered the deep salt layers, but they really didn't take off until they started producing those deep salt layers. And this is Equinor partnering with uh, Repisol Brazil and Petrobras and putting this project together. This is over $9 billion of investment. And the cool thing about this is this one FPSO has got a production capacity 
over 16 million cubic feet of gas a day with over 14 million BOE a day as well. That is a crazy number in a vessel. Baker Hughes supplying the turbo machinery. And the cool thing about this is that this one project should meet about 15% of the total Brazilian gas demand. So literally 15% of all the natural gas that Brazil needs is one project bill to meet. Wow. This is wonderful. A lot of this gas can be sold. They're building pipelines to also convert to LNG to also sell to Europe. So this is another place where there's an excess of hydrocarbons that not only will benefit the local people, in this case, Brazil, but also allow Brazil to start supplying the rest of the world with LNG, which I really do think is the fuel of the future. So good job, everybody that's involved in this project. Here's some more good news. Vietnam upstream sector outlook brightening. Okay, so there's something in here that I didn't catch right away. But if you read through this, the first paragraph says that Vietnam's upstream sector outlook is brightening as the government aims to accelerate progress on two substantial offshore projects integral to ambitions for clean energy transition. When you read through this article, it becomes apparent to you that in Vietnam, like the rest of the world should be, but not, they say natural gas is clean energy. Huh. It is. This is part of their (laughs) renewables program. They're building a 431-kilometer pipeline. This is one hell of a pipeline. This will be the longest pipeline in Vietnam offshore to bring that gas back onshore. They're building four natural gas-fired power plants and fried electricity to Vietnam. This project will also have a central processing platform, a floating storage and offloading vessels for FPSOs like we talked about earlier, a flare tower, and this is all going to be connected to a whole bunch of wellheads. Exxon discovered this gas field in the early 2000s, and it was never commercialized. Exxon ended up bowing out. Chevron stepped in, and then Chevron goes, I'm tired of trying to negotiate with you, Vietnam government. So Chevron stepped out. And then what happened is the Vietnamese government actually pulled this thing together with a couple of other companies. One's called Block Piomon, and then another one's called Blue Whale Cavoy. Excuse my Vietnamese. Not that good. (laughs) (laughs) But this is just an amazing project that's going to benefit everybody. And the fact that Vietnam recognizes the fact that natural gas is clean energy and that by using natural gas instead of coal, it benefits everybody, including the planet and their people. This is just awesome. I love to see this sort of stuff. I actually went to Vietnam once. I was very lucky. I went before the Hiltons and the Burger Kings popped up everywhere. Mm, So you got to see the culture. The culture. And look, I know we have a history there, and it's not a history that a lot of Americans like to remember. Mm -hmm. The Vietnamese people I met loved Americans. And that whole Vietnam War thing, it wasn't on the top of their mind. Humble, hardworking, some of the best who'd have had anywhere. Good for you, Vietnam. I hope to have more of this type of prosperity and success for your people. All right. Last one. UK offshore wind industry risks cancellations. Hedge fund chief. So if you read through this article, recently I talked about how the offshore wind auction here in the Gulf of Mexico only had one bidder. What's starting to happen now in Europe is there's zero bidders. Mm. And a lot of this offshore wind activity that was done right during, right after the pandemic was funded by, of course, government subsidies. Mm -hmm. And those government subsidies have been tailored down because, quite frankly, the governments don't have this much money to throw at something that's not doing a return on their investment. And you're seeing that Europe is going back to hydrocarbons. I mean, even to the point of starting to want to frack in Europe, which I, I still can't believe. Well, these wind farms need to make a profit. The problem is they're not. And because they're not, the developers themselves don't know what to do. So you signed a contract, you bought a lease, and there's a lot of offshore area in Europe that are actually ideal for wind farms, offshore wind farms. You commit it to the government and to your shareholders that you're going to build these wind farms, and then they're going to generate electricity and turn a profit, and everybody's going to make some money, everybody's going to be happy. Except what's happening now is 
You can't build them, which you said you could because of inflation. They're supply chain bottlenecks, right? Because basically the parts you need to build a wind farm only come from a certain number of countries. There's no financing after the first round of government subsidies because the government subsidies were there to help you get stood up. But by then, you're supposed to run your own two feet, which they can't. And interest rates have gone up. So this big wind movement in Britain especially – where they're going to build thousands and thousands of miles of offshore energy wind farms is not happening. And a lot of these projects are halfway built and they're being abandoned. And we talked about this before, who's going to clean up an abandoned wind farm, unlike the oil and gas industry that has to put either money up front or post a bond, which is basically putting money up front to decommission production platforms. So whether even if the company goes out of business, the money's there to tear these platforms down, that doesn't exist in offshore wind. And so unfortunately, unless the government steps in, and right now most of the governments in Europe don't have the money to step in, nor do they have the will of the people other than the just stop oil people that glue themselves to rocks. <laughs> they don't have the will of the people to dump even more money into these projects. So basically- Makes sense. Projects are running out of money. So this huge wind energy investment boom that was happening, especially in Great Britain, has stopped. And now it's actually starting to go backwards. It's a mess over there. Unfortunately, I think in the next couple of years, you're going to see drone picture after drone picture after drone picture of abandoned wind farms, not just in Europe, but all over the world, especially offshore. And it's going to be like those documentaries you see on YouTube where they explore abandoned malls and stuff. I think you could see that. And it's just a shame. What is the remediation for that? There is none. Now, some countries and and some states in the U.S. do have rules, right? Right. So here in Texas, even though they don't have to post bonds to deconstruct the wind farms once they are end of life, in Texas, the company itself has to keep enough cash to keep their license, and that cash is to decommission those okay. wind farms. So they don't have to post a bond like you do for oil. The state of Texas tries to ensure that the companies that own them always have enough money to decommission them, right? But there's a lot of places in the U.S., a lot of places around the world where either that wasn't thought of or – most of the time, it was considered a disadvantage financially. So let's not make the wind guys post bonds because then they'll make less money. And they won't be able to compete in the open market. Let's give them a freebie and they don't have to post a bond to decommission their projects, which means somebody's going to pay for it, unfortunately. Yeah. Sounds like it's it probably us. us. Yeah. yeah. The consumer. Yep. All right. That's it with the news stories. Speaking of stories, let me tell you a really good story. This is a good segue. This is a quality segue. Quit laughing. So <laughs> four weeks ago, we launched our Sunday update, right? comes out on Sunday. It's really cool. You get a total behind-the-scenes look at OGG and all your favorite podcasters. You get industry insights and data to help you with your job no matter what you do that nobody else could get. You get discounts on all kinds of cool stuff. And we got merch. And we got merchandise. People, we went from zero to 15,000 subscribers in four weeks. Wow. So thank each and every one of you 14,000 people that signed up for our Sunday update. It's still growing. I have no idea what it 14 is. 14 or 15? So it's 15,000. Okay. Right on. Yeah, Thanks, so guys. We're obviously doing something right. It's free. The link's in the show to go sign up for it. I'd love your feedback. One of the things that we're actually throwing in, and I think the next two weeks, and we'll be a regular part each week, is I found a company that for over 100 years, the family has catered in the oil and gas industry, right? So they have over 100 years of recipes. And they have some funny names. Don't get me wrong. So each week, we're going to have a different oil and gas food recipe in our Sunday. I'm already hungry. (laughs) No. And then we have our other oil and gas events newsletter. If you're in sales or marketing, sign up for that newsletter. It's free. It's in the show notes. This gives you each month all the oil and gas events that are going on around the world, plus a lot of times private stuff that nobody knows about that's not open to the public, and often discount or free coupons. So Two newsletters, one's the Sunday update, one's the oil and gas events. Both those links in the show notes. 
Recount, where are we? That's uh, not looking great. So the United States is down 11, 630. Canada, no change, 190. Internationally, down nine at 952. Yeah, see, that should be going up and it's going down. Mm-hmm. It's be interesting 2024, just like our LinkedIn page. It's interesting. If you want to follow us sure. on what we're doing, just go to LinkedIn page and just check on follow. A bunch of cool stuff happened there. First Friday Q&A, if you want to ask us a question, there's a place both on onlygasthisweek.com and on OGGN that you can ask a question. We also take questions from social, just not Facebook Messenger. because I only check And don't leave us a, a video. Please. Yeah, don't then we have, to transcribe, we have to transcribe it, it. Yeah. and stick it in the show notes. Yeah, so it's just a pain. Hit us up on the forums, on the websites. If you want to hit us up on Twitter or LinkedIn, that's fine as well. I will say this much, though. Some of the questions we get that we don't talk about on Only Gas This Week because it's not appropriate, we actually have discussed on our Sunday update. It's hilarious. It is. <laughs> it's, it's you get to weird. know a little bit more about me. A lot more about you. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. Um, All right. Next enough. week. Actually, when this comes out, this conference will be going on. So the first week of October, uh, half the OGGN team, it seems like, will be at the SPE Submersible Pump Symposium. I'm going to ask Emma to get it out earlier if okay. possible. So we'll be there. You and I will actually be at the Mixer doing a live episode of All the Gas this yeah. week. That's on Monday. Was that October 5th, I believe? Whatever that first Monday is in October. So if you're going, come check us out. It should be loads of fun. If you want myself or any of our experts to come speak at your event, whether that's doing a live podcast. It's the second. Oh, a second. Doing a keynote. Let us know. We always have a lot of fun with this. I'm happy to share the details with you. Just reach out to me. Ready to get out of here? Mm-hmm. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.